Hello everyone, I am Richard Crudo, ASC, and I'm sitting here with one of my favorite people, not just in the ASC, but in the world, Victor J. Kemper, also an ASC member, uh, an ASC past president, an ASC Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and also the current treasurer of the ASC. Um, Victor was one of the new wave of cinematographers in the 1970s who, along with such greats as Gordon Willis, Owen Roisman, Vilmos Zygmunt, and Laszlo Kovacs, changed the ways that movies had looked up to that time. Uh, some of Victor's credits include The Hospital, The Candidate, Dog Day Afternoon, The Last Tycoon, Slapshot, The Eyes of Laura Mars, and many, many others. Um, what we're here for today is to examine one of my all-time favorite films, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, based on a novel by George V. Higgins, uh, it's a terrific, terrific story. Directed by Peter Yates, released in 1973, it concerns the extreme low end of the underworld in Boston. Uh, more specifically, uh, a dire situation faced by Eddie Coyle himself, a middle-aged low-level career criminal played by Robert Mitchum. Uh, Peter Yates is one of our great unrecognized directors, I believe. Uh, he did a ton of terrific films. Peter was most observant and free to explain very carefully what he, exactly what he wanted. And yet, when we got to a location or a setup, he would listen to suggestions, even though it always sounded like he was locked into something. He always was willing to collaborate. And I, I was very pleased with that attitude, and I think it makes for a better picture. Well, the first thing I'd like to mention and advise everyone to keep an eye out for on this film is the enormous simplicity in the storytelling. Um, it's entirely without artifice. The movie is stripped down to its essentials. And whether or not people realize that, that's very, very hard to do. Um, how did you guys go about formulating that plan? Because it's very, very strong here. It's consistent all the way through. Uh, from, from an acting and a director's point of view, I truly believe that uh, <clears throat> this calm nature, which plays against what was, what was going on, uh, was made in the rehearsals. And I'm a believer in pre-production is being where the movie is made. You know, the, the, the guts of a film come out of pre-production. I'm, I'm sure of it. And in this case, I know that it, it worked. The trick was for me to get used to this idea of, of everything being on such a calm, uh, almost, almost non-criminal nature. It was very strange. Uh, and I fell into it by watching a rehearsal and changing my idea about where the camera should be placed or how it should move because the movement of the camera, you know, helps the, the feeling of a scene a lot. Um, and it was a day-by-day -day learning experience for me because I'd never worked uh, under these conditions or with a director who worked like Peter. I don't take it you did any storyboarding or any of the like. No, we did not. And so you'd show up on the day and block out the scene. And the, way I the way we all like to shoot movies. Um, in terms of the look, the overall texture 
uh, as, a toast, as opposed to the structure. What, what were you going for? I mean, you can look at it and say it has a gritty feel, but that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Well, it, <clears throat> it has a gritty feel when it's supposed to. But one idea that really grabbed me, and this goes back to pre-production, was they've suppressed the, the nature, the criminal nature, that would be expressed physically in most, certainly, pictures today. And I thought, gee, what a great opportunity to shoot some pretty stuff. And that's, that's the way I dealt with the exteriors early in the film. You'll notice the autumn leaves were great at that moment, and uh, and uh, the scenery itself was nice. Mm -hmm. Even that that terrible old cement plant or whatever whatever it was I don't remember um, was good looking. But it's a bleak beauty. It's exactly. It's not you know the autumn leaves and what you say about that. Yeah, it's pretty, but it's it's all stuff that's dying, and it's it's sort of symbolic in its own way. And if you, you may or may not remember, but the camera was quite steady during those time during those shots. It hardly we hardly ever moved uh, because it fo makes the audience focus on what's being said in the scene more than what's happening. Because almost everything that is um, um, expressionistic in the film comes from the dialogue, not from the action. That's, that's what's so beautiful about, about the way that movie was directed. And it is so the antithesis of the way so many movies are mounted today. Especially violent ones, and this um, is a very violent movie. Yeah, I mean, we talk all the time about the structure and form of movies, and um, you know, today you can be bowled over by the amount of cutting and the amount of camera intrusion into the telling of the tale, and this is the the polar opposite of that approach, which I think is part of why I admire it so much. Um, one eight five. One eight five. One eight five. That was uh, obviously a, a conscious choice, as opposed to anamorphic. Was there any particular thinking behind that? Budget. Really? Yeah. And um, it was not a high budget film, <clears throat> in spite of the fact that a name like uh, Mitchum was there. Um, do you recall what stock you used at the I time? I do, indeed. 52.45, I believe, was the daylight stock, okay. and that was 50 ASA. That's before they changed it to ISO. And, and uh, a 52.54, which was the uh, interior, you know, tungsten. And that was what, and that 100? Was one, that was 100, yes. Did you push that at all? I know it was very popular to push um, 54 in that time. No, uh, I, I, I really wanted to make it, I, I wanted it to be as dark as possible and prayed every day before I went into dailies that the image was going to be there. <laughs> I, really, I really pushed the limits. And, and Peter encouraged that. You know, he, he wasn't worried. He said, it's okay. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll figure it we'll out. We'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> What sort of stop would you work at then, let's say, on interiors if you were, were you down, way down at the open always, end of the lens? Yes, I worked almost always open, except in daylight, you know, but course, at night, yeah. pretty much open. And uh, lenses and equipment came from? Panavision. Panavision. Yeah. So Panavision. So those must have been 
early and, and Aeroflex, both. And yeah, yeah, I'm sure he had a couple of two C's out there, and um, uh, you know, doing yeah. a little bit of the wild work. This um, is pre-Steadicam days, of course. Oh yeah, pre-Steadicam. Were you a lot of locations or uh, practical? Sets or um, everything. everything, everything was practical. No sets, I mean, um, no sets, everything well, was. Well, there was some set work, odd bits they, here and there, where but they had to change a, a counter or you know, and and refurnish for some reason. But for the most part, it was practical, all practical stuff. Now, here's Mitchum. What a great introduction to his character that shot through the diner window when he walks out of the dark and steps right. up to the window. That tells the whole story about his character right there. I mean, here's this guy, an outsider, basically, on the margin, comes yeah. out of the dark and into the shadow, and there he is. And the way he's, the way he's dressed and the, the way his hair is ruffled, and, and nothing's perfect with him. Oh, he's great. And you know immediately that he's just a, a loser. Well, you can see that... Um, in this case especially, and this is an enormous, one of our legendary movie stars, there's no catering to, to an actor's ego here. I mean, this is really, a, you can see it's a brutal portrayal. He looks like somebody who's been through the mill and is not hiding it. It sure does. <laughs> um, but it's great. Was there anything special about the lighting inside the diner here? Uh, obviously, I can see in their eyes you've got some fill light going on uh, to bring up the faces from the overheads. Well, the ni the nice thing here is that the overheads were kind of low. Hmm. Uh, they weren't the fluorescence in the ceiling coming straight down. So I got a bit of an angle uh, so that I didn't need nearly as much fill in the, in this scene as, as I might ordinarily go for. Mm -hmm. Obviously, see, that's, th this light is the source. I mean, it's it's the... The, the practical light, yeah. yeah. Obviously, there's no uh, diffusion of any sort in this movie. You wanted a harsh, grit, gritty take the on... The only diffusion that ever went on the camera was an occasional correction for fluorescence mm -hmm. when it was necessary. The bar that follows up now, what a great set, a great location this is. Um, this is minimal, as you can tell. Boy, it's, it's great. This is minimal lighting here. And because it was practical, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of places to hide lights. Well, the first shot is from a down-low angle, and as Peter Boyle approaches the um, the table, the booth where Joe Santos is sitting, and you can see you're looking right up into the almost the ceiling of yeah. almost the entire place, and you just see the, yeah. the practical fluorescent fixtures. It took, um, it took some ingenuity uh, in this scene and some others that we had to, uh, to get the look we wanted and, and not, not have to change the shot because the lights would be there, you know. No, it looked terrific. I mean, the only supplemental lighting appeared to be in close by the booth, which I guess you did yeah. from the floor. Um, yes. Here we're in the uh, cement quarry or the rock quarry, whatever it might be yeah. now. But what a great location. You know what? It is, it's a quarry. You're absolutely right. But you can feel the wetness and the dampness and the chill of the place. Um, you said before that earlier in the movie you were aiming for prettier stuff. This place is anything but pretty, but it's, it's got an appeal. But a bleak appeal, um, which is really quite something. And even the weather cooperated. I don't think it would have felt the same on a sunny day. Um, You're right. It wouldn't have. You know, this is actually it was a sunny day, 
and we talked the whole the whole quarry out. <laughs> well, you gotta after we get off the air here, you have to tip me off on how you did that one because I want to keep that secret for myself too. Um, what were you doing in day exteriors in that time? It was pre HMI. Um, what would you do when you needed to boost up some uh, electrical lighting on day exteriors? Um, we'd either use a brute in those days. And, um, and for the benefit of some of our younger listeners, tell them about brutes, Victor. You mean those great big pieces of hardware? They look like uh, double-sized trash cans where they put a couple of uh, carbons in and touch them together and strike a, a, a big arc with a lens in front of it to to focus it where you wanted to. Uh, and every 20 minutes you had to stop, change the carbon because it burned out. Um, oh, those lights, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the quality of light that came out of an arc was very special. Yeah, it was. It was. And daylight was daylight. I mean, it really, really matched. If you didn't know that, you wouldn't, you'd think it was daylight. Mm. Of course, uh, reflectors. I'm, I'm sure I used some reflectors here. Were you a fan of gelling uh, tungsten lights, blue mm, in no. any case? No. I know some people used to like to do that with well, nine light phase yeah, and I've what have done, you. Yeah, I've done yeah. it. But yeah, but just as a rule. But nine light phase, why not use nine light daylights? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never really been a fan of HMIs. I mean, what was your take on them as you started to use them in later years? I have mixed emotions about them because I think for bounce bounce light purposes, they were terrific. And almost always, if I used an HMI, it was as a bounce. Uh, that way, we had the color temperature that I needed, and there was no, no sharpness. It was telltale. So if this is the first night exterior that we're seeing, and I got to tell you, there is this is some of the boldest night exterior work uh, I think I can imagine. I'm actually very proud of the night work in this movie. It, I'm, I will pay I'm you. I'm glad you mentioned. I'll it. pay you one of the great compliments because later on, when they do um, the gun deal out in the middle of nowhere, it looks as if you used an inky one uh, and and sell the effect. Well, that's it, it's pretty much the case. I. I really am a minimalist when it comes to lighting. This is super minimalist. And, yeah, and it's but, great. It works. It absolutely yeah. works. Even that one, There's you pan across from uh, Joe Santos approaching the car where he picks up the guns, and there's nothing there, but there's something there. You know? Yeah. There's just a little, just a couple of highlights or something deep in the background, which goes to show that you don't have to show everything all the time. It's unfortunate because I feel that a lot of directors want to do that today. They think the audience has to see every everything that that's in the frame somehow. And and I think you lose a lot by doing that. I think it you're giving up some exciting things when you when you show everything. They're out in the uh it looks like a park somewhere away from the city yeah, in the woods. It is. Um, in a little pavilion, and it looks like a beautiful sunny autumn day um, in kind of this beat up little place that they're meeting in. Um, there's an element of prettiness to it, but there's also an element of, uh, once again, that bleak, deserted 
um, sort of off-season feel. This is one of the um, one of the scenes that fit into the concept of the prettiness and the static camera working not against but with the the frightening nature of the of the whole story. I love the way you use the, 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 tree. the tree branch yeah. to break up the sun on his face. Yeah, and we call that a dingleberry. A dingleberry, or a tree of loris. Yeah. Um, but that's really nice because to look dead on to him in the sun like that would have um, yeah. been a bit stark. Um, and when Mitchum comes around to the same position, you did the same thing with him. Now, obviously, you're using some fill inside the pavilion on the shadow side yes. here to, to bring him up a little bit. Well, I had to, otherwise... I would have had to knock down the sun. I would have had to put up a, a net or something, you know. So instead of lowering the river, we raise the bridge. Exactly. <laughs> now here we are out in the field where this gun exchange is going to take place. And this has to rank as one of the most minimally lit, large-scale night exteriors, uh, certainly that I've ever seen. Yeah. You did so much with so little. Tell me about it. Okay, that goes back to... It's all single source. We, we touched on... Yes, it is. But that's that's an important trick. To, it's not even a trick. I mean, it's... Technique. Makes sense to do. Well, you can't... You always, again, you have the feeling of um, an ominous feeling. Anything could happen here. People are playing well, with what guns. Do you think of this? I love this. And here are just a couple of points of light coming out of that same darkness now. Flashlights. Returning back to the car. And, and all that darkness around you really contributes to that feeling. I mean, you always you have the sense somebody could come up behind you even at any point here. Um, in the theater, they'd come up behind you. I mean, this is really great stuff. Were you a big fan of underexposure yeah. at night or at any particular yes. times? Tell us about that a little bit. How far did you go down the scale, or did you have a limit for yourself, or did you mix well, underexposure and printing? I couldn't. I, couldn't, uh, I, could, I guess I could have if I stopped down, but I, you know, I was working pretty much wide open with all of this stuff. <coughs> so we're talking about twenty-five foot candles, maybe, and that's when we, and that's when uh, that's at a hundred ASA. Tungsten was a hundred, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the lenses, you know, to get a lens below two five was uh, was a miracle <laughs> in those days. We were using those mirrors uh, consciously too. We have mirrors. We're in the inside the trailer in the bedroom in Alex Rocco's trailer, and Mitchum uh, is exchanging the guns for some cash. See, and great uh, mirrors. And when, when Rocco was sitting down here, we positioned him to to be in the mirror as well. So there's a, co a complete continuity of, of the dialogue, you know, from both of them, particularly since this is a turning point in the movie. Mm -hmm. Boy, great set decoration. Look at those curtains. Yeah. <laughs> the furniture. Now, what did you do lighting-wise in here? Because you're so limited in terms of where you can put anything. You can't go from overhead. This is one of the few times that I have so many lamps on and in the set. The practicals? Set. Yeah. What did you do uh, with them? And, and did it you bothers boost them? me now when I see when I see them all on in, in, in the like the wider shot when they were standing. I mean there's a lamp here, there's yeah. there's two lamps here, and there's another lamp on the, and then in the mirror you saw another lamp by the chair. 
and that it bothered me when I saw it. What did you do with the practicals? Did you use, um, did you boost uh, theatrical oh, uh, units, or what I've did you always do in used, there? I always used regular lamps. Household bulbs. Household bulbs. At oh. their rated, um, at their just 100 watt or and just what yeah and that's how i changed the brightness by changing the wattage on the oh you didn't dim them you didn't use a dimmer no 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 because then the color temperature shifts right right that's why i asked if you if you boosted <clears throat> yeah them. no i i never did that and not photo floods or anything like that just right off the shelf ge well you don't mind if i use sylvania oh well, yeah oh, okay. <laughs> this is a great shot we're inside the bar and Mitchum is approaching, and he goes in, and we take him right inside. When you started with the head of the shot looking out the window, it's on the cool side. Um, there's some correction, like a half correction on the window, maybe? There, it looks to me like there is correction on there because of the color. Well, it, it's a trifle cooler on the outside, which just fits. It's totally, totally um, understandable, natural. You wouldn't question it. This was all daylight lit, you know, daylight quality. This is this is all daylight here. The fluorescence yeah. that we see overhead between them, and and what it probably was was a half stop. Mm. Okay, I got you some uh, neutral density on the window. Yeah, beautiful composition. Peter Boyle on the telephone in the back of the bar, and way deep in the room, out of focus against the window is is Mitchum, and there's another straggler in the middle yeah. that just balances the frame, um, and the old payphone. Um, when you shot here, did you uh, do any tests or anything of the arena at first, the ice? You just showed up and figured we're we going to fire up, away. We showed up for a game. Showed up and shot the game as it was. Yeah. It looks great. We futzed a little bit in the original timing for the, uh, for the print. What did you do up in the stands here? Did you, um, obviously you had to own this section while you were shooting, no? Yeah. You know, you put all your extras and everybody that was part of the production right, 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 and you could manage them, right. that. What, um, for this, the scenes of our actors, of Mitchum and uh, Peter Boyle in the stands, what supplemental lighting did you use there? I was able to uh, just uh, bounce something off a car because you see it's nice and soft. Right, right. But when you own the place and the game, you had the section to yourselves and there was no game going on. What were you doing to light these guys there? I, I have fill in. Yeah, you've got something going on there. Yeah, just, it's a bounce, a yeah. little bounce card. A small one, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just to bring them up a little bit. No, it fits beautifully. It works fine. This final, this shot here in the um, parking lot. Chutzpah? Will that the work? chutzpah yeah. of the parking lot here. Uh, a little, I wouldn't call it terribly high, but it's a little elevated, the camera, and it's wide, and we see the, the neon sign of the um, bowling alley, and the car pulls in. Um, Mitchum has just been murdered in that car, and Peter Boyle and the young guy are getting out and switching to another car. Camera hangs locked off on this shot. It's a beautiful composition. It hangs here for a very long time, and it is minimally lit. Um, you've got the big neon sign and the reflection of that in the wet pavement, and it looks like just a little fill in the foreground on the car. That answers your question, your, your remark about the camera is high. We actually fussed with that till we got the angle of to get reflection the right. oh, back yeah. off, the, off the tar. Well, boy, I'll tell you. And the dialogue that's being delivered at that point, you, don't, you never see the actors. They're just little 
dark phantoms, yeah, and, that, and you don't have to. You know who they are. That is right. so. That shot is so much more dramatic and powerful, and it lets you fill in all the blanks and all the horror of yeah. what just happened. Um, well, that's, fabulously. That's because that's what Peter felt would work. You know, that was. His yeah, but it's beautifully shot. <laughs> it's beautifully yeah. photographed. It's it's a great composition. And it just, it all, once again, my highest compliment, everything about this movie is of a piece. At any rate, um, Victor Kemper, ASC, fantastic film, uh, amazing job among many amazing jobs that you've done over the years, but this one is, is just particularly close to my heart, and I, I really appreciate this time we spent. And um, any final words? Yourself? Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed.